This morning, we are going to be heading into our final look at the book of 1 Peter. We've been in it for over 13 months now. This is our 13th week. 13 months, three months, three months, 13th week. It's been a long Thanksgiving, y'all. Um, I hope you enjoyed it. Uh, I did too. I was blessed, but uh, I pray that you had a great time. But we are, we're wrapping up our series in 1 Peter, not home yet. And, and I don't know about you, but I've been challenged and comforted through this whole series. Challenged because we see time and time again that suffering for the believer is a reality of life. It is something that God makes us aware of, that we are going to face suffering, but comfort knowing that our King holds us in his hand, that he doesn't just abandon us to what we face in the world, rather he walks through it and he, he carries us through it. And what a beautiful thing that is to be able to be challenged and comforted by. But this morning, we're gonna be going to those final words in 1 Peter chapter five. So if you've got your Bibles, go ahead and turn there with me. Now on, on, uh, on Friday in our fellowship news, I asked you a question. I don't know if you saw it, but uh, I asked you, how, how do you wrap up a letter that you write to a loved one? How, how do you seek to draw everything to a conclusion? I don't know about you, but whenever I come to God's word, especially when I approach the end of letters or books, it, it gets me thinking along those lines. How, how is the author gonna wrap all of this up? Because we know that, that in those last words, it's often the time that we try to pack in as much as we possibly can to remind them of what has been said and to, to give them what we really want them to walk away remembering. And what we're gonna see this morning in 1 Peter is that this is no different. This letter is no different. There's, there's a jam-packed conclusion that we're gonna dive into here in just a minute. But even as we get there, one of the things that I was reflecting on as, we, as I was studying and getting ready for this morning is that if we're going to have a proper perspective in life, then, then we need to keep a heavenly perspective in view, right? And, and what we're gonna see as, as Peter draws this to a, to a close with these final words, and by the way, final words, they're, they're powerful, right? They, just, they, they have this gravitas that comes with them. And as we're gonna explore them, I pray that you're gonna be encouraged by them. But, but what we're gonna see is that he points us to a heavenly perspective. And, and as I was thinking about that and the necessity of doing that, having that heavenly perspective in mind, I was reminded of C.S. Lewis. And, and how he sought to do that and to, to draw his reader's attention to the heavenly perspective that exists. He even did it in, in his Chronicles of Narnia. I don't know if you've read the series. If you haven't, I highly recommend it to you and your kids. But, but let me read to you kind of how he wrapped up his whole Chronicles, right? Last paragraph, last scene of the whole thing. This is what he said. He's there with, Aslan is there with Peter, Edmund, and Lucy. And he reassures them with these words. He says, the term is over. The holidays have begun. The dream has ended. This is morning. And then he wraps the whole thing up. C.S. Lewis wraps the whole thing up with this. He says, as he, Aslan, spoke, he no longer looked to them like a lion. But the things that began to happen after that were so great and beautiful that I cannot write them. And for us, this is the end of all the stories. And we can most truly say that they all lived happily ever after. But for them, it was only the beginning of the real story. 
All their life in this world and all their adventures in Narnia had been but the cover and the title page. Now at last, they were beginning chapter one of the greatest story, which no one on earth has read, which goes on forever, in which every chapter is better than the one before. You hear the heavenly perspective? This is key in our purposes this morning, to keep that heavenly perspective, recognizing that last words are powerful. And so if you want a a sermon title for this morning, you can jot it down, the power of last words. We're gonna be looking at them because again, in this jam-packed conclusion, we see the Lord through his apostle Peter, through his servant, giving us so many great things. But I'm gonna boil them down to four. I'm gonna say that the Lord is, is giving us four reminders, four things that he wants us to walk away remembering from this passage with that heavenly perspective in mind. So let's dive in and read it together, if you would, with me. First Peter chapter five, and we'll begin reading just verses six and seven. It says this, humble yourselves therefore under the mighty hand of God so that he may exalt you at the proper time, casting all your cares on him because he cares for you. We'll pause there just for a minute and we'll, we'll think about the first reminder that the Lord gives us through Peter. And it's simply this, to be humble, to be humble. Humble. Pastor Ryan finished up last week's sermon by drawing our attention to verse five, where we're told to clothe ourselves with humility toward one another because God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. And then we dive into verse six, humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God. Notice that therefore in that verse six, it's there to to link it directly to verse five. And and what that's showing us is that if we wanna do what verse five says, to, to close ourselves with humility toward one another, then we first have to do what verse six says. We have to humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God. That's where we have to start. That's where we begin. We, we learn to be humble. And until we learn to do that, until we learn to be humble, recognizing who God is, that he is the God of all love and care, that we can trust him even through the suffering, even through the difficult times, then we won't clothe ourselves with humility toward one another because we'll constantly be be trying to grasp on to control ourselves. But when we learn to humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God, that frees us. Of that, of that feeling that we have to do it all ourselves. And it, it releases us to do what verse five instructed us to. Now, one of the things that I want us to, to understand here in verse six as well, is that this first two words, humble yourselves, that's not just a suggestion, that's an imperative. That's a command, right? We are to humble ourselves. We are not to just go through life doing what we want. Rather, we are to actively choose to humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God. Again, accepting and trusting that whatever God permits in our lives, whether it's times of good or struggle, whether it's times of plenty or even persecution, we can accept that which he brings into our lives because we know the one who has allowed it is the one who has already rescued us. 
Just as the people of Israel understood that it was under the mighty hand of God that they were led up out of slavery in Egypt, we can understand that it's under the mighty hand of God that we have been saved from the dominion of sin and darkness and we are freed to live with him. It's under his mighty hand that we want to be. There's no safer place than that. And recognize as well, I love the terminology, it's under his mighty hand, not under his thumb. It's under his hand. It's, think about how you grip anything and hold it if you want to protect it and guard it. You kind of pull it in close, right? One hand underneath to support, one hand over top to, to shield and to guard. This terminology speaks of the loving care and concern of our heavenly father. And again, we're reminded that there is no better place to be than under his mighty hand. What a beautiful reminder from Peter in the midst of all that we might face in life. But we also continue on and we recognize that this, this imperative, this call to be humble also comes with a kingdom principle. It says, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God so that he may exalt you at the proper time. You see, one of the things that we need to remember as believers in Christ is that submission and humility, when we humble ourselves, it is always the prelude to blessing and exaltation with God. It always works that way. This is a principle that he has laid down. And I believe Peter is just drawing on the words that he heard the Savior speak in Matthew chapter 23, verse 12, where he says, whoever exalts himself will be humbled and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. It is a heavenly principle that we see working its way out whenever we humble ourselves, submitting to God. That is the pathway to blessing. We even see that worked out in the life of our Savior, right? If we, if we had the time, we'd go back and read the whole passage. But just if you would, just jot it down. Philippians chapter 2, 5 through 11. He says this, Paul began and said, adopt the same attitude as that of Christ Jesus who existing in the form of God did not consider equality with God something to be exploited, but instead he emptied himself, taking on the likeness of a servant. And when he had come as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient even to death, even death on a cross. Verse nine, for this reason, God highly exalted him. You see, humility before our Father always leads to blessing. It's the pathway, it's the principle that we see laid down in Scripture. But notice, as Peter says, that that happens at the proper time. At the proper time. It reminds me of the reality that nothing with God is just because. Nothing with God is just, just to put us through the ringer. He doesn't do that. He's not, a, he's not a God like that. He's a good, loving, caring father. And so we need to remember that nothing is just because. Rather, he has a plan and purpose for believers, even in our suffering, to lead us through. We know the plan and purpose. He's already laid it down in 1 Peter 1, 6 and 7. It's to purify and to refine our faith. In James chapter 1, 2 through 4, it talks about how our suffering and our trials are there to mature us right? They're to make us Christ-like. And so with that in mind, we can go through life trusting him even in the midst of those difficult things because we know that he is going to exalt us. We know that he will literally lift us up, raise us up, 
both in the here and now, but think again, heavenly perspective, right? Where he's leading us to, one day we're gonna be at home with him in glorified bodies reigning with the sun. There is a beautiful reality set before us. But part of learning to be humble is learning to patiently wait on God's timing because it's at the proper time that he will have this come to pass. What do we do in the meantime? I love verse seven. Cast all your cares on him. Literally cast all of your anxieties, all of your worries, all of the things that burden you down, throw them upon him. This is not, again, a, a, a passive thing. This is not something where we just simply resign ourselves to what we face in, in life. Rather, Peter is giving us the invitation to literally throw everything on our God, allowing us to be released of that burden. It's a decisive act of effort, and yet the effort is well worth it. Because again, it frees us up. I, I think of the words of Jesus once more in Matthew chapter 11, 28 through 30. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I'm lowly and humble in heart, and you'll find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, my burden is light. We can cast all of our cares upon him. Why? Because he cares for us. He cares for us. You see how much Peter is packing into this conclusion. He's, he's just like, it's a drinking from a fire hydrant of goodness, right? It is so, it's such a blessing to us, but it's because he cares for us that we can do all of this. And just in case you're wondering if we really know that to be true, let me be clear. He proved that he cared for us by sending his son. He proved that he, sent, that he cares for us and that he loves us by sending his son to do what no one else could do. And now the son's cross and resurrection stand as an immovable testimony of his love and concern for you and for me. No matter what we face in life, that never goes away. And we can stand knowing that we are cared for. But we do that first by humbling ourselves under the mighty hand of God. So first and foremost, we are to humble ourselves. We are to be humble. Secondly, Peter gives us another imperative. He tells us to be alert. Let's go back to the passage. Look at verse, look at verse eight with me. He says, be sober-minded, be alert. Your adversary, the devil, is prowling around like a roaring lion looking for anyone he can devour. This idea of being sober-minded is one that we've seen already in 1 Peter. In 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3, and then in chapter 4, verse 7, he gives us this idea of being sober-minded. And what it is, is literally sober-minded could be summed up as a believer ought to be characterized as one who is thoughtful and watchful and ready. That's what it is to be sober-minded, right? We're constantly on the guard against our enemy, looking for any advance that he might make toward us. But why should we be alert? Why, why, why do we need to do this? Because let me just help you with something, right? It's something that the Lord drove home to me. Casting all of our cares upon him, as verse seven tells us to do, does not absolve us of the reality and the responsibility to be alert. We don't just go through kind of going, I'm putting blinkers on because I'm casting everything on the Lord. No, we gotta pay attention. 
because we have a very real enemy. Just look at how Peter describes him for us. He says, he calls him your adversary. That word literally means accuser. In the Hebrew, it's the, it's the word that we translate the Satan or Satan as we have given him his proper name in that regard. He brings false accusations against us before the throne of God. And then Peter goes on, he takes it even further. He says, your adversary, the devil. That word literally means slanderer. And so what we see is that Peter is, is drawing our attention to the fact that our enemy is a slanderous adversary, a slanderous enemy who knowingly brings false accusations before the throne of God against us and against him himself. That's who our enemy is. And we need to be aware of that. Why, why should we be aware? Why should we take note? Because in a similar way to just how any good NFL coach right now is studying the playbook of their, of their opponents, we need to study the playbook of him. We need to know how he operates so that when he comes against us, when he brings accusations or when he lets loose of those fiery darts as Ephesians 6 talks about it, we are able to know how it's gonna come and we know how to stand. We gotta know how he operates. We gotta be alert. And so what we see is that this, this second reminder to us is based on the fact of who he is. We've got to recognize our enemy. I'm going to give you three R's really quick. My dad will be proud. Three R's, right? First one is recognize the enemy. Second one I'm going to give you is respect the enemy. I say that in the sense that we ought not to take him lightly. In the same way that we need to show a healthy respect for electricity when we're trying to switch out like an outlet in our house or whatever, we need to respect our enemy. Why? Because he's prowling around like a roaring lion looking for who he may devour. He's prowling around. It's interesting. There's, throughout scripture, we see this again in Job chapter one, verse seven. We kind of get this, this picture of our enemy almost having a restless energy. Like he's prowling around constantly when in Job chapter one, verse seven, when God asks, Joe, or asks the, the, the devil, where have you been? He says, oh, I've been out roaming to and fro across the earth. There's a restlessness to him, but he doesn't just walk about. No, he's prowling around like a roaring lion. Let's just be honest for a second. I don't care who you are. Lions are intimidating creatures, right? Like, have you ever seen one of those nature channel, like, videos where they're like, a lion is like just charging the camera. Like you can be thousands of miles away and months removed from when that documentary was made and you still feel the fear grip you as you watch that animal bear down on you. But can you imagine being face to face with a roaring lion? It's not a fun idea and that's the point. Again, Peter wants us to understand that we need to respect our enemy. We need to know what he's capable of, and we need to know what his intention is. And his intention is given to us next. He says that he's prowling around like a roaring lion looking for anyone he can devour. That word for devour literally means to gulp down, to destroy one's enemy. And so therein we see the intention of our enemy. He plans to kill his enemy and to completely destroy their faith if he was capable of doing it. That's his goal. We need to recognize who he is. We need to respect what he is capable of. We need to be alert, but also 
Peter tells us not only to recognize and respect, but to resist. Look at what it says in verse nine. Resist him, firm in the faith, knowing that the same kind of sufferings are being experienced by your fellow believers throughout the world. We are to resist him. But I don't know about you, maybe, maybe you're thinking, how do I, how do, I do that? How can I do it so that as in, as in James chapter four, verse seven, it says, resist the devil and he will flee from you. I mean, how do we accomplish that? Let me be clear, it's not gonna be in our strength. It's not gonna be in our own doing. Look at what it says, resist him firm in the faith. That's how we do it. We don't do it on our own strength because here's the reality. He is too powerful for us. He is too cunning He's, he's too good at what he does. We can't overcome him ourselves. But the gospel tells us that he's already defeated. He's already lost the war because Jesus won it through his cross work and resurrection. In, in John chapter 12, verses 31 through 33, Jesus talks about how he's, he's dethroned Satan, so to speak. And in, in Colossians chapter 2, 15, he, he fleshes that out even more. Satan is a defeated foe. And so we don't need to try to fight that battle alone. We simply need to resist him. And the way that we're gonna do it is by being firm in the faith, trusting wholly and solely in what Christ has done for us on our behalf. It points us back to the gospel. It shows us that everything that we've got to our benefit is because of him. And so we delight in our savior. That's how we resist but we are also bolstered, we're also encouraged just by the reminder that we're not alone in this fight. Brothers and sisters all around the world are facing the same thing. And so we band together and we remember one another, we pray for one another and we uphold one another. That's how we can resist. That's how we can stand against him. And just as we share in struggles together, remember heavenly perspective, we're gonna share in glories together when we stand with him. It's all because of who he is and what he has done. So much jam-packed into one little closing section. Last words have power, don't they? So we are to be humble. We are to be alert. But thirdly, we are to be hope-filled. Be hope-filled. Look at what it says in verses 10 and 11. The God of all grace who called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself restore, establish, strengthen, and support you after you have suffered for a little while. To him be dominion forever. Amen. There's so much that we could look at, but let me, oh, let me, let me, let me just start here. He's the God of all grace. The God of all grace. Be hope-filled because you can know the God of all grace, grace being those riches in Christ Jesus that are incomparable and incomparable to us. They have all been given to us, not because we earned it, but simply because of his love and he wants to bestow them upon us. And he's not just the God of a little grace. He's not just the God of some grace. He's the God of all grace. That's who we can know. And so we can find our hope in him. But also look at what it says. The God of all grace who called you, who called you. We're called, we're invited near. And what are we called to? We're, in called, we're called to his eternal glory. Oh, this is so good. This speaks to the reality that when God 
delivered us and forgave our sin. He not only removed it as far as the east is from the west and, and set us in a, in a righteous standing before him, before him, but he also drew us close. He invited us near into close, intimate fellowship with himself. We've been called to his eternal glory. And again, this eternal glory that we're invited into, it is all part and it's all as a result of the redemption plan that our great triune God put in place. I love how Galatians chapter four, you don't need to turn there, but Galatians chapter four, four through seven, lays out the gospel for us. At the proper time, God sent forth his son, born under the law, born of a a virgin, that he might come and live and die for us, right? And so it's through the cross work of Christ, it's it's through his life that he lived on our behalf and his death on our behalf that, that we can be saved for those who repent and put their trust in Jesus and in the finished work of Jesus, which, which was confirmed, by the way, by his resurrection and ascension. If we would just put our hope there, we can know him. And, and for, uh, Galatians 4 talks about how we can be adopted as sons, heirs of the kingdom. It's all because we have been called into his eternal glory. It's all because we have been drawn close. And look at what it says. It's all because we who are called to his eternal glory, we've been called in Christ. Again, draws us back to this reality that everything we have to our benefit is in him. Everything is in him and by his doing. Praise God for the gospel and how it works and how it continues to work in our lives to encourage us and to prop us up no matter what we face. But he's not done. Look at what he says. The God of all grace who called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself restore, establish, strengthen, and support you after you've suffered for a little while. Let's, let's deal with the second part first and then we'll go back to those four words. The second part, after you've suffered for a little while. This again draws back that theme in First Peter that suffering for the believer is just part of life. We recognize that the grace that God has bestowed is big enough to see us through that suffering. Uh, but in that, let me, let me just encourage us with a couple of thoughts with regard to suffering. Number one, it's only for a little while. It's only for a little while. Reminds me of what the apostle Paul said in 2 Corinthians chapter four, verses 16 through 17. He says, therefore we do not give up. Even though our outer person is being destroyed, our inner person is being renewed day by day for our momentary light affliction is producing for us an absolutely incomparable eternal weight of glory. So we do not focus on what is seen, for what is, or, but, what, but on what is unseen, for what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. You hear the eternal perspective again? What we face here on earth, it's only for a little time in comparison. And then secondly, just to drive this point home a little further, remember that even though our union with Christ will lead us to suffering, it will also lead us to glory. That's our hope that is set before us, that we get to go and see him face to face, not as in a a glass dimly lit anymore, but face to face. Be hope-filled this morning, brother, sister, wherever you're at, whatever you're facing, be humble, be alert, but be hope-filled. 
Let's go back to those four words, though, that that we saw and read past earlier. Uh, Juan Sanchez, who we've quoted several times in this series, refers to these uh, four as kind of being like the crescendo of a beautiful musical masterpiece, or kind of like the finale of an epic firework display, kind of like boom, 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 right? And I just love that description. So let's dive in and look at what is there for us. What what do these words get at? The, The reality is that he himself is going to restore us. Restore speaks to the fact that he is making what was broken whole again. He is making things new. He is making it perfect. And again, I'm reminded of Paul in Philippians chapter one, verse six, and how this relates to us, that he who began a good work in us will see it on to the day of completion on, at Jesus Christ, right? He began a good work in us and he's gonna restore us and perfect us. That's what this is speaking to. But he also goes on, he says that he's going to establish us. That speaks to the reality that he he is going to make us firmly planted so that we are not toppled or swayed or moved by anything that would come against us. Strengthen literally speaks to what it sounds like. He's gonna make us strong to resist our enemy. And then finally, support. He will support us. That actually speaks to the foundation that he establishes beneath us that it is on that firm foundation that we can stand, that we can be established, that we can take our stand against our enemy. I'm reminded of the the parable, right? Wise man built his house upon the rock, foolish man built his house upon the sand. Christian, build your house upon the rock because it is a firm and sure foundation. It is the support that we need and with it, he will see us through. And what I love about this, again, you go back to those two little words, he himself, or the the fact that the God of all grace will himself do all of this. He is actively involved in our lives. We do not go it alone. He does it for us. And at the end of a passage like that, what else can you do but praise God and declare his glories like Peter does? To him be dominion forever, amen. This is such a beautiful reality that we can focus on and remember as we draw our study in 1 Peter to a close. But lastly and fourthly, we are to be humble, we are to be alert, we are to be hope-filled, but we are also to be encouraged. Just look at the last couple of verses together. Verses 12 through 14. Through Silvanus, a faithful brother, as I consider him, I have written to you briefly in order to encourage you and to testify that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. She who is in Babylon has chosen together with you, sends you greetings, as does Mark, my son. Greet one another with a kiss of love. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. Be humble, be alert, be hope-filled, and be encouraged. I love this little passage because we're introduced to Silvanus, right? Or how we may more commonly know him, Silas, right? He's Paul's traveling companion, many many scholars would agree. And and yet he's also evidently a very close personal friend to Peter, likely Peter's scribe. But we get the sense that Peter is literally taking the pen out of Silvanus's hand or Silas's hand. And he's penning these last couple of lines himself to kind of put his signature on the whole thing. But Silvanus has been his, his right-hand man in, in penning this letter for him. And we see that Peter calls him a faithful brother. Many argue that he, he gives him that title because he knows he's, he's going to entrust and he can trust him with the task of seeing this letter delivered to those that it needs to go to. 
And praise God that he did that task and we have it recorded for us in scripture today so that we might be blessed through it as well. But then Peter goes on in the second half of verse 12 and he in like a, in a couple of sentences, a couple of phrases, again, just reiterates the whole purpose of his letter. He just sums it all up again, just to drive it home once more. He says, I have written to you briefly. By the way, just saying, Sunday mornings, y'all are blessed, right? Um, if, if this is brief, even if we were just to read it, think about how long we'd be here, right? We're, we're blessed. And now we can be in this, but, but Peter, he wrote to us briefly to encourage us, to lift us up, to build us up, to prepare us for what, for what might come next. But also not just to encourage us, but to testify, to testify, to give an account, to give a witness to the true grace of God. Time and time again, throughout the whole letter, Peter has drawn our attention back to the gospel and shown us that our hope is in Christ Jesus and Christ Jesus alone. And here he's doing it again. He's bringing our attention back right where it needs to be. And so we come to understand that through the gospel, we see that God's work in us, even though it allows for suffering, has a great and glorious purpose that we would be drawn closer to him, that we would be made more Christ-like, that we would be purified, refined, and matured, and that one day he'll lead us home to eternal glory. So in spite of whatever we face, we can have a living hope in the grace that he has revealed, this true grace of God. You know, I'm just thinking about all of these boxes, all of these beautiful boxes, that at the end of service, a member from one of your households is gonna come and grab. And we are giving it to you with the express purpose that you'll remove your set of cards and then repackage it and pass it on to someone else, maybe a family member, a loved one, some neighbors who don't know Jesus. But why would we do that? Why go to all of this effort at this time of year? It's because he is our glory revealed. He is where grace is found. He is our hope. He is the only thing that we can boast about. And so we present him because he's worth declaring. He is worth sharing. He's worth going out of our way to help others understand. So Peter wrote to encourage us and to testify to the gospel, to this true grace of God, that in spite of suffering, he wins. And we see that through that. And that's what he tells us that we can stand firm in. Stand firm in it. Don't try to stand firm on your own. Stand firm in your hope. Stand firm in what is true and what we know God has called us to. Church, we need not be shaken. No matter what is going on in the world, no matter what comes into our lives, we need not be moved because we have a sure and firm foundation and we can stand firm in it. And I love the difference in the language between stand firm on it and stand firm in it. We are in Christ. He's made us part of his gospel story and that's where we can reside and that's where we can find our hope and that's where we can find our rest. Stand firm in him and in his great and glorious gospel. And then verse 13, following custom, Peter simply sends greetings, right? From she who is in Babylon. Now that the she, I believe, uh, and I think text affirms this, is, is speaking to the church, right? The bride of Christ. And she's in Babylon. Many commentators think this is code name for Rome, right? Babylon, archetypal city of evil and opposition toward God in the Old Testament. Rome became that in the New Testament. And so many think that, that Peter is using this as a code name for Rome. 
Some argue that, no, it's actually Babylon on the Euphrates, right? Still a prominent city at the time. Here's the deal. Whichever way you go, he's sending greetings from a church there. And that's just encouraging. He's also sending greetings from, Pete, or from Mark, his son, right? Son speaking to probably the reality that it's his son in the faith. We have no record of Peter actually having a son, a biological son, that is. But, but Mark, John Mark, is who this is speaking of, and he's sending greetings from him, the writer of our second gospel, the, the writer of the first gospel written down that drew a lot from Peter himself. Obviously, he means a great deal to him, and he sends greetings on their behalf. Why, why bother picking up on greetings, though? Just really quick. Why not just read past that? Can I just point out a couple of things, just again, really practically? It's just good to know that other believers, other brothers and sisters in Christ are there with us in the fight, right? It's good to know that, that as great as what we have here at Fellowship is, we're not alone. There are churches throughout our city that are meeting right now. And we are in this fight together. We are standing together, taking our stand against the enemy and against what the world would seek to crush us in with. And we're gonna stand for him. And we can be encouraged knowing that there are brothers and sisters that we can link arms with. And also we can be reminded to pray for them just as they pray for us. And then finally, Peter wraps up with verse 14. I love it. He encourages us to greet one another with a kiss of love, peace to all of you who are in Christ. Now, I'm not suggesting that y'all start kissing before the end of service, all right? This, was, this, is, this is cultural, right? So let's just deal with that for a second. This is speaking to how we should greet each other warmly and affectionately as believers. Why is that a thing? Why, why bring that in? I think it's because what Peter is trying to help us understand is that when we keep our eyes on Jesus and we recognize the love and, and fellowship that he has for us, and then that can flow out to others as well, and we can greet each other warmly. No matter what's going on in our lives, mind you, we don't just put on a, a happy face. We don't just like bin, grin and bear it, pretending like nothing's really happening. No, we choose to put our eyes on Christ. And therefore, when that is in view, we can be freed from our burden so that when we meet a brother and sister in Christ, we can greet them affectionately because we are family in the kingdom of God. Even in our greetings, we are reminded of what he has done for us in spite of what life has thrown at us. But I love how he finishes. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. I love how Peter has bookended his whole letter with peace. Remember chapter one, verse two? May grace and peace be multiplied to you. He's already dealt with grace, right? We saw that in verse 10 and, and other places as well. But here he's dealing with peace. We can, we can have peace in our God and Savior. We can know who he is. We can know that in spite of whatever we face, we can have peace in him. So let me ask you, where do you find your peace? If you're looking for peace in the world, you're gonna be chasing it until the day you breathe your last. But if we would just recognize that our peace is found in him, then all we need do when life hits is press in. Press into the relationship that we've been invited into. Press into his eternal glory. That's a beautiful thing for us believers. And if you're here this morning or you're watching online and you've, you don't have a personal relationship with Christ, then can I encourage you to get in touch with us? We'd love to share more. If you're here in the room, come meet me in the lobby. I'd love to share more because it's in him that our peace is found.
We are called to stand firm in 1 Peter. And I love how Juan Sanchez summed up this whole thing in his little book, 1 Peter, to you. Let me read to you what he said very quickly as we close. He says, we stand firm in the true grace of God as we suffer simply because we are Christians. We stand firm, this is knowing what we've been called to, we stand firm knowing that while the world may take everything away from us, it cannot take our glorious identity or our imperishable future because we are elect exiles, set apart by the Holy Spirit for salvation accomplished by Christ. And now on our way home, chapter one, verses one through two, we stand firm knowing that even though the world may kill us, we have been born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ to an imperishable inheritance. We stand firm knowing that God does not waste our suffering. He intends for it to purify our faith in order that we may obtain our future salvation when Christ is revealed and we go home to glory with him. We stand firm knowing that our Lord Jesus Christ traveled the road marked with righteous suffering and blazed a path for us to follow. We stand firm knowing that if we suffer for doing good, we will be blessed and will be exalted at or as Christ was. We stand firm knowing that we share in Christ's sufferings. And if we do, we are proven to be Christians. We stand firm by humbling ourselves under the mighty hand of God, knowing that he will exalt us. So brothers, sisters, church, as we wrap up First Peter, can we just walk away with those four reminders? Be humble, be alert, be hope-filled, and be encouraged and let us stand in the true grace of God until we breathe our last or he comes to get us on the clouds for that is what we have been called to. Amen? Amen, let's pray. Father God, we thank you, Lord, for who you are. We thank you, Lord, for what you have done on our behalf. We thank you, Lord, that even your call for us to stand Lord, is only accomplished because of what you have done already on our behalf. And so, Lord, I pray that you would remind us and hearten us with the gospel today. Lord, help us to depend upon you, to remain alert and vigilant to what our enemy would do, but help us, Lord, to press into you in all things. And Lord, would you, by your spirit, give us the strength to stand so that we can be great testimonies of your grace in this place for others to see. Lord, we thank you for who you are. We thank you, Lord, for the power that are in last words. Lord, would you encourage us through them this week? In Jesus' name we pray and by his spirit, amen.